Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew she tied you to a kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair And from your lips she drew the hallelujah 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 Hello and welcome to 128 Sterling. I'm Noah Richler. What a week it's been, eh? Thank you, Patricia O'Callaghan, for helping us reflect on the loss of the singular Leonard Cohen. May he rest in peace. It's been a week of winners, if you're American and Republican, or Madeleine Tien, the author of Do Not Say We Have Nothing, who's just taken home the Scotiabank Giller Prize for fiction. But where there are winners, there are also losers. We need, we need you to keep up these fights now and for the rest of your lives. And to all the women, and especially the young women, who put their faith in this campaign and in me, I want you to know that nothing has made me prouder than to be your champion. Hillary Rodham Clinton lost beautifully. I was standing with the young women, weeping from the balcony as the Democratic presidential nominee and former senator and secretary of state delivered her concession speech the morning after the U.S. election. You could say nothing became Hillary's campaign like the leaving of it. So many were smarting, not just the election lost. You won't be hearing a whole lot from me in this issue of 128 Sterling called An Anthology of Lost Things. But you will be hearing from some marvellous talents reflecting on their own particular losses. Let's get started with my pal Stephen Roderick, a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Rolling Stone magazine, and the biographer, in his book The Magical Stranger, of his father, an Air Force pilot who died in a plane crash in 1979. We spoke in the wake of Hillary's lost election. Hey, Stephen, it's Noah. Hey, how are you? Well, I'm okay. <laughs> I, I want to say I'm yeah. sorry for your loss, but it's also ours. Yeah, it's a fucking disaster. I was watching The Returns with my wife, who is Alex Oline, a Canadian novelist, and our son Peter, and we went to our local polling place and voted, and we had sat down and had a bottle of champagne in the refrigerator, and there reached a point in the evening around 8 o'clock where she was up four points, and Florida, and then as the night went on and the numbers got closer, the possibility that uh, Hillary would lose states like Michigan and Wisconsin that supposedly were in her pockets just became more and more reality, and it all just started to go south there, and around 9 o'clock there was a kind of creeping feeling of disbelief, and I went for a couple walks in my neighborhood to just kind of 
call myself, but by, I don't know, 10.30 or 11, it appeared that she'd really need a miracle, and it didn't seem like it was on the horizon. What is the thing that was lost to you? For me personally, one of the greatest things that was lost is, you know, I grew up, my father was a pilot in the Navy, was killed when I was 13, and I was raised mostly by my mother and two sisters, and I really had an emotional connection to the idea that a woman could be the most powerful person in the world. And I think that being so close and then it being snatched away, not just snatched away by another politician, but by someone who's clearly a misogynist and has multiple sexual assault issues, it's just heartbreaking. You know, the platitude would be that there's something to be reaped or gained from particular loss. Is there anything to be gained from this? say that there is. Will the country someday come back? Sure. But if you want to look at one way, in 2008, we elected Obama and that showed who we wanted to be as a nation. And in 2016, by electing Trump, I think we've shown who we are as a nation. And that's going to take a long, long time to recover from. So I was one of the six shortlisted authors for the Giller Prize. Gary Barwin, author of Yiddish for Pirates, on losing the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Just a couple days ago, I was in this very fancy hall. It looked like a Barbie palace or something. And I was waiting for my name to be called or not called to be the, uh, uh, the winner of the prize. It was kind of remarkable. I was sitting there beside Gordon Pinsent, who had introduced me, and I was waiting for that moment. And then they announced a name, and it wasn't mine. And it was very interesting. I was very aware of being in a contest that I didn't enter. I was delighted to share writing and the celebration, but to me, it's an odd experience. And so um, I had convinced myself that I wasn't going to win. Partially, I kind of guarantee success by lowering the bar, and then I'm never disappointed. And I didn't, in fact, want to surrender to the egoism of wanting to win. It also seems a bit of a ridiculous thing. But I was aware that, you know, more than winning, I just didn't want to lose. I guess that was mostly what I what I felt. And so the moment came, I was like, ah, yes, this is as I expected. And I was delighted for the winner. I just felt a little bit badly that I lost. Not that I didn't win, but that I lost. And as part of the ceremony, I was supposed to go on stage with Gordon Pinsent, who was introducing the book. I had a specific cue. I was supposed to wait until he had said some things. But as soon as he began, I was so, I guess, overclamped and so enthused by the whole situation and by especially him reading some lines from my book. I felt it was incredibly moving to hear it in his voice. I bounded up on stage way ahead of my cue. As soon as I got on stage, that I realized, yes, that I, that I had leapt up just in the fervor of the moment. But it was kind of great because I realized I had. And then Gordon Pinson put his hand on my shoulder very avuncularly and he was very warm. And it was this lovely moment. And though I realized that I'd, I'd screwed up and I'd missed all my cues and they told me a million different things, I also realized that this is making good television. <laughs> I was aware of that. It was lovely for me and I was genuinely thrilled. But also Gordon Pinson made it into great television by being warm and, and just supportive. And it was so kind of lovely to be up on stage in front of people hearing him say lovely things about my and just to be able to be in this very positive celebratory environment. And 
In my novel, Yiddish for Pirates, um, as it says in the title, there's a lot of Yiddish in it. It's narrated by a 500-year-old gay, immortal Yiddish-speaking parrot. And what Yiddish does is, to me, much of the character of the parrot, and he has a very sort of philosophical, bemused, optimistically pessimistic or pessimistically optimistic view on the world, which is reflected in his use of, of Yiddish. I don't know if he's shrugging his shoulders. I don't know if parrots can shrug their shoulders, but he is verbally doing that in that way that Yiddish does so well. And I think Yiddish is um, very much about how Jews can survive and how to talk about it. And to me, it's like a technology of survival. For me, the, the Jewish religion isn't based on winning as much as not losing. I mean, Yiddish is a, as a, a language of sort of philosophical reflection on being able to sort of deal with adversity with some warmth and with some perspective and with some almost affection in a way and some bitter affection so it's like so new we we survived it it's okay right it somehow we make we've made it through there's a great yiddish joke is but why do jews not like to drink uh, because it dulls the pain which i love because it's just about somehow there's pain and you can take agency with the pain by just addressing it and by sharing the pain with others and by failing together and then somehow managing to keep going on. Like, well, like Beckett, right? I'll go on. That feels really Yiddish to me. And not that Beckett was exactly a Jew, but you know what I mean? There's some kind of ability to keep going and to somehow embrace the, the struggle. All of the holidays are based on they tried to kill us, we survived, and then we have food to celebrate. We survived anyway. It wasn't exactly about being victorious. That's so much part of the of the worldview of the book, using that Yiddish to deal with loss. And I've been nominated for a number of awards, which I've lost, so I'm, I'm getting good at losing, so I, I should have some expertise in this. You know, on one level, it's set up as a competition. So yes, there's a loser in the way that someone who doesn't win a soccer championship is a loser. But on the other hand, I was delighted by the nomination. I um, had amazing attention. So many people read the book. Many people, I had many positive interactions about the book. So to me, it was entirely a winning situation. I never expected such thoughtful engagement and such enthusiasm from all sorts of people. And so by being in the contest, I had that opportunity I suppose you're in there with a lion, and whether you get eaten or not, people really know know that you were there, I suppose. Sibel Young, on a lost bear. I had great toys as a kid. I can try to remember some of them. Barbies defaced with sharpies and long hair, punk-chopped by the end of their usefulness in my life. Polly Pockets. Saved my money and couldn't wait to pick them up from the consumer's distributing conveyor belt. Stiff plastic half-dolls in low relief could click-pop different clothing onto their bodies. Totally uninteresting after one or two plays. One toy I remember vividly was a small mermaid doll. In my hands for minutes before my brother threw her across the room, She disappeared down a hole and into the basement. We spent days looking for her. I never found out where she went, but she lived several toy lifetimes in my imagination. Apart from my bear, I have the most vivid memory of the mermaid doll. Bear. My stuffed bear starred in every sleepless bedtime performance. Other players came and went. Already had a few decades on me, having been my aunt's childhood toy stuffed with straw, worn patches, 
crunchy head. Found a lush golden version in an antique shop once. Price tag aside, I felt disloyal to buy it. I made Bear a dress, my first and only attempt at crocheting. He, Bear is a he, I think, saved my bacon when I got caught trying to steal leggings. Who would call security on a teenage girl who still carries around her teddy bear? He came with me when I snuck out to spend the night in the park. Probably with a guy, on acid, maybe. Bear was with me when I ran away from home. My brother. Would you trade Bear for a million dollars? Never. My biggest fear was to lose Bear. If he wasn't with me, I knew where he was. His nose chipped and finally fell off by the time my own daughter was young. For a Christmas present to me, she gave him a new nose, drawn and sewn on. Sometimes I'd have him sleep in between me and my husband. When my son was old enough, he'd make sure to keep Bear out of the dog's reach. I remember the day, five years ago, that Bear became less important. That day, my son lost his first tooth. My daughter turned 15, the age I lost my virginity. That day, change became more interesting than fear. I lost my fear of travel. I lost the need to worry marriage. I lost my fear of losing. It's all still new. I don't yet know what I have. I can't remember where I put my bear. Kathleen Winter on Lost Ships, Her Lost Mother, and Lost Mystery. It lives in my memories. It lives in our memories. It lives under the English Queen's Ocean. It has died under the ice. Has it died, or does it live in our mind's lamp? Is that one lamp? How many memories do we share? How many have we lost? And how will we ever replace them? These are stamps. These are the stamps bearing the ship named Erebus, after we thought we found it. Is Erebus what we found? A braided, hulking, and blue? Or was it brown, and where is it? Where is it now that we found it? In Baffin Bay, where the whale ships blow, the fate of Franklin no man may know. The fate of Franklin no tongue can tell. Lord Franklin among his seamen does dwell. Through cruel hardships they vainly strove. Their ships on mountains of ice were drove. In the stamp, the Erebus lists in the process of being lost. The ship is white. The white ship will move our written word from one to another, from us to our children, if we still send paper letters, which we don't, which we have also lost. The Queen's River remembers its run to the Arctic Sea. Inuit remember the foolish men, sad men walking. The white stamp remembers them. Erebus lists, slants, cranes and yearns and heaves, don't sink. 
the white stamp is deathly afraid of oblivion. I met a man, a small man, who said he'd invented a big thing. He was on the ship that said it found Erebus. Who found it? Who foundered? Anyway, he said he found it, the small inventor, so proud. Yet, where are Erebus and terror? Is terror also white? Does Erebus really mean darkness? Is darkness white? Am I white with terror? Did I want to find beneath the ice the corroded, eroded, outmoded codicil? Code, ice, ill, ill-gotten, ill-conceived, submerged ill, sunken, nil. Or, I lost my mother. I mean, she died. And my father wanted everything out. Hats, boots, camisoles, her perfume bottles, knitting needles, an exquisite half-slip with La Loire embroidered on it in pink satin thread, the binoculars she took with her to see La Traviata at the Metropolitan Opera, her Sunderland pottery lusterware jug. Out it all went, under the Arctic Sea, with Franklin's goblets, singlets, silverware, a hundred and seventeen pounds of chocolate, and his ship's piano. But the one thing of my mother's I wish I had kept is the handful of string ends she kept between summers, tangled and worn out, and none more than six inches long, to tie her hollyhocks on their sticks. Somehow I didn't realize how that tangle would call from inside the same lantern where Erebus lives, all bright and shimmering, asking how we became so lost as to have abandoned her. Russell Smith on losing a pen. On a dock at a cottage in the sun, I sat about 17 years ago, intending to write in a leather-bound notebook. I had with me a gold-nibbed fountain pen, quite an expensive one, and I was looking forward to the luxury of its weight in my hand, and the smooth pages, and its easy flow. I'd brought a laptop to the cottage, but it was inside. This was going to be real writing, writing that was actual sensual pleasure. In the open air, the sun hot on the page, the lake was calm, I'd just seen a beaver disappear under the dock. I was ready. So I didn't write. I put the notebook down to stare at the sky and the tree line. And then I bumped the notebook with my foot and I saw in one irretrievable half second the worst thing happened. The pen rolled off the notebook through the slats of the dock. It flashed gold as it sank into black water. There's always a second second in these moments of thinking, wait, maybe I can stop this somehow, maybe I can get it back. One gets on one's knees and peers down, but the water was deep and dark. Then there's a moment of anger, and then attempts at self-reassurance. It's okay, it's just money, I can get another one. Right now, I'll just have to use the laptop, which I did. I went inside. I had to work inside because I couldn't read the screen in the sun. 
I never did purchase another fountain pen, because shortly after that, our computers all became interconnected and they were harder to abandon. After that, the screen was everything. I myself was carried away in the current of breaking news and naked flesh, of argument and business, constant planning, constant exchange. Computers grew smaller and their connectivity became transportable. Wherever one went, one was swimming in that lake of poker stats and love letters and electronic beats, and one was expected to be available too, to respond to the messages that come at us in swarms. That was the last time I ever did write with a fountain pen. I haven't written with a fountain pen since. I haven't again held such a perfectly designed and evolved and powerfully symbolic and intrinsically creative object in my hand. I almost feel as if I've not ever again been outside. Kevin Patterson on Lost Ways. For the last 20 years, I've worked on the west coast of Hudson Bay in the little hamlets thrown up there by the government as the Inuit came in off the land in the 1950s and 1960s. Rankin Inlet, Arviat, Baker Lake, Coral Harbor, now yet. The geography is stark here. There are no roads in or out of these communities, and the treeless barren lands crowd in from all around. Even a modest wind will suffice to make enough snow airborne that surface travel becomes dangerous. And the wind here is often much more than modest. Though the hamlets are new, already it seems implausible that humans ever overwintered here outside of them. In December and January, when it is so dark, all but the very elderly huddle close together in their houses and wonder how one could ever survive outside them for more than a weekend. But an 80-year-old today was 35 in 1970, as the last of the people to live the land came into town. She would have borne her children in a tent or an igloo, would have known how to make shelter, even, especially, in a storm, in a hurry. And, crucially, she and her people would have been able to find food in the dark months. It was a ferociously hard life on the land. Babies died as often as they survived. Famine swept this area as recently as the Diefenbaker era, when drive-in burger joints spread throughout the south. No wonder, then, that the people left that life behind when given the choice. It meant that their children would probably survive. It meant that they would have food and company. And yet, when I visit with the old men and women and ask them if anyone could still survive out there over the long run, they all tell me there isn't. Even they couldn't. They've forgotten so much. And their children and grandchildren never learned it. The sense of loss, then, grows acute, and after a short moment, the conversation returns to something more immediate, such as the suicide rate, which is 700% higher among northern indigenous teens than among their southern settler peers, or the diabetes never before seen among the Inuit that has appeared everywhere in Nunavut just in the last 15 years. My grandfather homesteaded in the Peace River District in northern Alberta. He was a difficult and violent man, and he tormented my grandmother until she was a broken and alcoholic shell in her last years. He could weld, run a trap line, build a house, 
Cedarfield, shoe a horse, and brawl competently. I can do none of those things, or much of anything else besides, except the narrow disciplines with which I earn my living. If I didn't have people on every side doing everything else for me, I would just fail. The Inuit do not wish for the lives their grandparents had, nor do I for those of mine. And yet, Craig Davidson on losing fights. So, all right, I lost quite often in this old life of mine. I mean, loads of stuff. Personal belongings, a more forgetful human being than I, you're not going to find. Lost a few friends, too, usually the result of my own foolhardy actions. But mainly, man, I've lost fights. Lots and lots of them. In fact, if I'm being honest, I don't think I've ever actually won a fight. I mean, maybe I dummied my younger brother once or twice, leaving him dazed in a snowbank or, you know, the kitchen floor or something, but that was more a matter of an older brother exerting his right to wail away on his young sibling, who, having been generally beaten on by his older brother throughout his nascent existence, you know, kind of just did what came naturally and took his lumps. But when it comes to fight fights... I mean, ones against members of the human race who do not share my bloodline. Then, I'm O for. O for everything. Zero wins, and at this point, too many losses to even count. I mean, I got beat up in the schoolyard or a few blocks away from it where the teachers couldn't even intervene. I got beat up at the horse paddocks at the stampede grounds where I'd been working with the Boys and Girls Club as a 14-year-old grounds worker. I remember I was thumped by a fellow sweeper kid for an infraction. Now the infraction I can no longer recall. But I got beat up outside the St. Catharines YMCA following a pickup basketball game by a fellow who I discover, always too late you discover the athletics, the local junior A lacrosse team. So yeah, I've had the floor mopped with, well, with me, the human mop head. But one thing I've discovered is this. If you stick up for yourself, if you agree to your pummeling and take it with something approaching good grace and a little spine, then the torments, they're going to stop. The other boy, that quasi-man, whatever, he backs off. There seems to be an unspoken agreement that if you fight, win or lose, the beef is squashed and it's time to move on. And I felt this so keenly while reading Atwood's Cat's Eye, which is, you know, amongst other things, a forensic account of female bullying. And that man, that is a different animal. It's about exclusion, whisper campaigns, emotional cruelty, and what's worse, there seems no true end to it. With a beating, it's over. The stack's been blown, the wad's been shot, and then it's done. Which is the only way that I can contextualize my many fistic losses as marginal wins. Because life, it reverts to its old arrangement. Which may not be great, sure, but it's a hell of a lot better than it was. And so we need we need you to keep up these fights now and for the rest of your lives. And to all the women, and especially the young women, who put their faith in this campaign and in me, 
I want you to know that nothing has made me prouder than to be your champion. Now, I, I know, I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. And to all the little girls who are watching this, never doubt that you are valuable and powerful and deserving of every chance and opportunity in the world to pursue and achieve your own dreams. And, to conclude, André Domi's on lost time and the ended lives of friends that bring our losses home to us. The night I logged on to Facebook to find that a friend had died, I was pressed for time. Being busy was my excuse and my addiction. I was always in transit across the city for this errand or that meeting. There was so little time to get everything done. Work, writing, podcasting, activism taking care of my basic human needs, that things fall by the wayside. I say fell as if I did not gather these things up and pitch them aside. Things like checking in on a friend who called me months before to let me know she'd come down with an aggressive form of cancer. I told myself a comforting lie after the first visit I paid her at the hospital that I would make the time to see her. But if I were honest with myself, I'd acknowledge that I've never learned how to make time. I've only known how to lose it. My relationship with time has always been a matter of scarcity and vain wishes. If only I had the time, I would do the important things, perhaps grasp the impossible. My grades would have been higher. My jump shot would stop clanging off the rim. My body would be toned, my mind disciplined, and my career distinguished. Dwelling on these thoughts is, of course, an absolute waste of time. I'm long past the age where I had the luxury to fantasize of being a point guard or maybe a doctor or a mixed martial artist. I'm now approaching the age where, if I'm not mindful of the things and people I love, time, and its inexorable decay, will snatch what little I have from me while I daydream. Last year, I lost a good friend. This year, I lost my grandfather. Dementia and diabetes, those demons who count time as their ally, are making themselves comfortable in my grandmother's body. And here I am, fretting about accomplishing some nebulous great thing with my life, giving what little time I have to strangers, and, by necessity, stealing it from those who have loved me the most. The ones I'm not ready to lose yet. It hardly matters. Time may be a cruel tutor, but... I'm the one who committed to being a difficult pupil. My losses are final, and they're on my own head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
Thank you, Andre Demise. In today's edition of 128 Sterling, an anthology of lost things, you also heard from Gary Barwin, Craig Davidson, Kevin Patterson, Stephen Roderick, Russell Smith, Sibel Young, and Kathleen Winter, who also provided the concertina bits. Patricia O'Callaghan, such a wonderful interpreter of the late Leonard Cohen's work, sang from Hallelujah. Links to all these artists' works can be found on the 128 Sterling page of the House of Anansi website. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler. Next time, Schools In, a look at how Dasha Tostakova, Patti Labucane Benson and Lisa Moore remember that particular torment. Till then, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>